You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. The Gospel of John, chapter 8. We're going to read together verses 21 through verse 30. Then he said to them again, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that your word is so clear and so true. We thank you that we can trust ourselves to you and to your care, knowing that you will illuminate our hearts and minds and open our eyes to your word, that we may be able to behold in it our Savior and a revelation of you. We have the confidence that in reading and understanding your word that we are hearing from you, your, your very voice in the pages of Scripture. So we pray, O oh God, that we might hear clearly today and that you would give us understanding in these things, clarity in speech, clarity in thought, that we might give to you appropriate obedience, honor, and worship. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I was asked a question last week after the service, and it was a good question, and it actually leads right into what we're going to be talking about today in introducing these I am statements in John's Gospel. And the question was this, and I'm going to answer this for you because this kind of sets everything up. The question was, weren't the Pharisees understandably and justifiably skeptical at Jesus' claims to be God? Wasn't that a justifiable and understandable skepticism? After all, if you and I ran into somebody on the streets today and they claimed to be God, we would be skeptical, wouldn't we? And we wouldn't believe them. We would write them off or think they were crazy. So can't we understand the Pharisees' skepticism and them not believing in Jesus? Aren't we just like the Pharisees? Isn't skepticism, rational, healthy skepticism, really just the only issue with the Pharisees and Jesus and their rejection of him as God? Now that is a fair question and a good question. The answer to it is this. Jesus claims to be God in the New Testament did not come in a vacuum. And it is not as if Jesus claimed to be God without offering any proof that his claims were true. Here is what makes Jesus' claims and the Pharisees' rejection of it of such a different nature as our rejection of somebody's claim to be God today. Here's the issue. There are really a couple of different ones. The big one is the works or the signs of Jesus. But you could look at the words of Jesus, his teaching. And that should have been evidence to the Pharisees that this was no ordinary man who was claiming to be God. Even his enemies recognized this man teaches with authority. Nobody has ever taught the way this man teaches. Jesus didn't just quote other authorities or quote Scripture. 
He, he spoke as one who spoke and it was scripture. He spoke as one with such authority that it captivated people. They should have been able to tell just from his teaching. But it wasn't just his teaching. It was the miracles that set him apart. It was the miracles really which proved overwhelmingly beyond a shadow of a doubt that what he claimed to be true, what he claimed to be true of himself was in fact true of himself. It was the miracles. Jesus did miracles and signs, listen, at a frequency on a scale and in a number that was unlike anything that had ever happened before. Prophets had done miracles. Elijah had done miracles. Elisha had done miracles. Moses and Joshua had done miracles. But listen, all of them combined did not even come close to approaching the scope and the number of miracles that Jesus performed. It was unparalleled in every way. Disease and demon possession were virtually banished in Palestine, the land of Israel, during the time of Jesus. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He made the lame walk, the mute to speak, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He healed congenitive diseases. He multiplied bread and fish, created things out of pure, uh, out of thin air. He did miracles of a nature that was unprecedented by any leader of the nation of Israel or any prophet up to his time. The amount of miracles that he did was itself proof that what he said was true. In fact, Jesus pointed to the miracles as evidence that he was telling the truth when he claimed to be God. You could go back to John chapter 5, and I'm just going to read to you a few passages. You can follow along with me, because all these are in the Gospel of John if you want. John chapter 5, verse 36. Jesus said, The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. That was the evidence. You remember Nicodemus recognized the evidence that the works of Jesus did. John chapter 3, verse 2, When Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus recognized there was something about the miracles that Jesus did which indicated that he was more than a mere man. You must be come from God. Now, Nicodemus didn't have a full-orbed, robust understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity and the humanity and the deity of Jesus like you and I would have, but he saw the signs of Jesus and he recognized him as a man at least sent from God. He could recognize that much. The signs indicated something about Jesus that the Pharisees were without excuse for rejecting. Even in the very next chapter, John chapter 9, in the case of the man who was born blind, and the Pharisees come to him and they are questioning the man born blind. And look what he says in verse 30. Chapter 9, verse 30, the man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he, that is Jesus, where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a, of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. See, there was a man who recognized what the Pharisees should have recognized, that, this, that the signs of Jesus pointed to something more significant than just the fact that he was a mere man. John chapter 10, a couple more passages. John chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Look down at chapter 10, verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. In John chapter 14, Jesus said to his disciples, in verse 10 and 11 of John chapter 14, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. It was the signs. 
In Acts chapter 2, this is the very way that the apostles argued on the day of Pentecost. Men and brethren, you yourselves know a man attested to, attested to you by God, by signs and wonders and miracles which God performed through him in your midst, just as you know, speaking of Jesus. And Peter pointed to the miracles that Jesus did and said, this was the authentication that what he said was true. Now, in the face of no evidence whatsoever, the claims of Jesus to be God would, the, the skepticism toward the claims of Jesus to be God would have been justifiable. But in the face of that much evidence, skepticism toward the claims of God, that Jesus to be God were inexcusable. You get that? It was the miracles. They saw them. They knew them. They understood what he did. Nobody ever argued against his miracles. Nobody ever said, no, I don't think he really did it. Or it was just a magician's trick. Or it was just an illusion. Nobody ever said that about Jesus. The miracles themselves demonstrated that he was exactly who he claimed to be. And so the Pharisees' rejection of that was without excuse. That is why John tells us at the very beginning of his gospel, and we've seen this over and over again, that the reason for the unbelief that we see in this gospel is not due to a lack of evidence. The reason for the unbelief is because these men loved darkness. That is always at the root of unbelief. They love darkness, and they will not come to the light because they hate the light, and they don't want their deeds to be exposed. That is why they were unbelieving. Do you know what the miracles and the signs of Jesus did toward people in that day? It didn't convince them that what he said was true. It demonstrated that their reason for rejecting him had nothing to do with evidence whatsoever. It demonstrated that the reason they rejected him is because they hated the one true God. And Jesus has been drawing attention to that over and over again. That is why Jesus is able to make the claim in John chapter 8, verse 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He is able to make that statement because the proof that he was God was so overwhelming, so undeniable, so monumental, that Jesus could say, if you do not believe that I am God in human flesh, standing before you, you will die in your sins. Now that is... We got up to the end of verse 24 last week. We just basically introduced this I am statement in John's gospel, which we find at John 8, verse 24. Unless you believe that I am, and you say there's a he there, there is. We'll deal with that in just a second. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That is the first of five what we call absolute I am statements in the gospel of John. Now, Jesus uses other I am statements or formulations throughout the gospel. For instance... He'll use the terms I am, ego I me, or ego a me, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Ego I me, he will use that term, but he will fill it in with a metaphor. Something at the end, which sort of describes his personality, his nature, his character, his, his work for people. For instance, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the living water. I am the door to the sheep. I am the resurrection, the life. I am the vine. Those are all, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those are all I am formulations. But Jesus takes the I am formulation, ego I me, and he fills it in with something else which sort of fleshes it out. He doesn't do that in John chapter 8, verse 24. You'll notice Jesus doesn't say, unless you believe that I am the light of the world, you'll die in your sins. He doesn't say, unless you believe that I am the way, the truth, and life, you will die in your sins. He just simply uses the phrase, unless you believe that ego I me, I am, you will die in your sins. And he doesn't fill in that I am statement with anything at the end of it which qualifies it. That is what we call an absolute I am statement in John's Gospel. There are five times that we read this in John's Gospel, which means that this is not a slip-up. Three of them are in John chapter 8. So what we're going to do this morning, this is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to ask you to turn to a few different passages in John's Gospel. Now listen, 
you know that I do not ask you very often to go outside of the book that we're studying and to flip from page to page and page. I think that's a trick that preachers use to keep people awake. Turn back to Matthew, turn to Revelation, turn to Philippians, go back to Genesis, look to Exodus, Malachi, and fill in all of that space. I don't do that. I have a reason for not doing that. It actually is attached to my whole philosophy of preaching. There's a very good reason why I don't do that. It's my rule. But rules are made to be broken, and so today we're going to break some of my own rules. So I want you to follow with me. We're going to look at these five passages in John. Then we're going to jump back into the Old Testament to see the background for what Jesus does in the Gospel of John. John chapter 8, the first I am statement, we're just going to go through all five of these, is John chapter 8, verse 24. Hold on, I need to get back to John chapter 8, verse 24. John chapter 8, verse 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that ego I me, I am, you will die in your sins. Now look down at John, John chapter 8, verse 28. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that ego I me, I am. And I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. John chapter 8, verse 58 Now, if you're reading the NIV, you're already confused because you're noticing some phrases at the end of those first two, right? We'll deal with that in just a second. John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, ego eimi, I am. Now look over to John chapter 13, verse 19. This one is really interesting. I can't wait till we get this to this in a couple of weeks. But in John chapter 13, verse 19, Jesus actually pulls not just the wording, but phraseology and this whole symbolism of prophetic fulfillment out of the book of Isaiah, which is incredibly meaningful. John chapter 13, verse 19, From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Ego me again. John chapter 18. John chapter 18. This is on the night of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, Ego I me. I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And so he answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. And you see that? Now there is a demonstration. That's kind of the, that's sort of the fulfillment. That's sort of the climax of all of the I am statements. Here he uses the I am statement and when he does so, the soldiers fall backwards, overcome with something. Jesus revealed something to them that absolutely overwhelmed them in John 18. I believe it was his glory. He uses an I am statement and the soldiers who came to arrest him were overcome with that. He was simply demonstrating to them his power and his glory in John chapter 18. Now all of those are, are I am statements. And you and I might read John chapter 8 verse 24. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And we read over that. And if you read it in the NIV, you'll see it's a little bit confusing. We read over that. We don't necessarily notice a direct connection to any statement to be God in John chapter 8. And even when you get to the end of John 8:58, if we're unfamiliar with the Old Testament and the Jews' understanding of the Old Testament usage of that phrase you and I would not understand that Jesus is talking about, or Jesus is using the name of God for himself. You could use in Jesus' day the name I am, or the words I am, ego I me, ego I me. You could use that phrase to in two different ways. It could be part of your normal everyday language. In other words, you could just use it to say, I am he, or I am the one. 
is me. I am. And we do that today. For instance, if I ask you, how many of you are going over to the new church facility after the service today? You might raise your hand and say, I am. But I wouldn't say to you, you're a blasphemer because you've taken the name of God upon your own lips and claimed to be the I am of the Old Testament. I wouldn't say that to you. Why is that? Because I understand in that context, the way that you're using that those words, that I am, you're not taking the name of God upon yourself. right? But we can also use the same two words, I am, to describe God and to, to speak of his name. If I ask you the question, not who's going over to the church facility this afternoon, but if I ask you the question, how did God reveal himself to Moses at the burning bush? What was the name that he gave to Moses? You would answer with what? The same two English words, I am. But we recognize that in some contexts, it's just a self-designation describing me or my activities. In another context, it is a designation for the name of God. In John chapter 8, the context and the structure and the way Jesus uses the language indicates that he is taking the name of God from Exodus chapter 3 and he is applying it to himself. It is the awkwardness of language that translators feel they need to sort of fill in the last part of that phrase. It's the awkwardness of it that indicates that Jesus is doing more than just simply saying, I am, I'm the one, it's me. He is taking the name of God that God gave to Moses, to the nation in Exodus 3, and he is applying it to himself. So let's jump back into the context of Exodus chapter 3. We're actually going to turn to two passages in the Old Testament, or two books, Exodus and then Isaiah. Exodus chapter 3. We read this at the beginning of our service today, so I won't reread the whole passage again. Exodus 3. This is the context, and the context of this is significant, by the way. In Exodus chapter 3, God is revealing himself to Moses as the God who would deliver the nation from their bondage in Egypt. And so the question in Exodus 3 is, what is the nature, the character, the works of God that is going to deliver us from our bondage? Who is the name of this God-deliverer? That's the issue. And it is, of course, the I am who I am. In John chapter 8, I told you at the beginning of John chapter 8, we did a little introduction to the Gospel of John, that a good outline for the Gospel of John chapter 8 would be that Jesus, as the light of the world, promises total deliverance to His people, to all who will believe upon Him. Deliverance from what? From sin. Bondage to sin's power, that is its dominance. Deliverance from sin's prince, that is the devil. And deliverance from sin's penalty, and that is death. And that's John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is offering to the Jews, I will deliver you from your sin, from your bondage, if you will embrace me as the I am. In Exodus chapter 3, God is promising that he is going to deliver his people from their bondage. And the name by which he will be known in that deliverance is the I am. Do you see the parallel, the symbolism there? That is why Jesus, in speaking of his ability to deliver his people, applies that divine title to himself. I am the I am. And unless you believe that, you will not be delivered from your sin. You will die in your sin. Exodus chapter 3, God reveals himself to Moses in verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That formulation is repeated three times throughout this passage. I think indicating or emphasizing to Moses that this is not some new God. This is not a God that he is and the nation of Israel unfamiliar with. This God goes all the way back and God is saying, I am the same God. I have not changed. I am eternal. I existed with Abraham. I was before Abraham. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. Now when God gave Moses the commission to deliver the people and to go back to Pharaoh, Moses said to God in verse 13, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel. And I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may see to me... 
What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now the question that Moses is asking is, God, is not this. God, what is your moniker? What is your name? Right? I refer to Shepley or Mel or Tim or Jim or Dave or Cornell or Jess. Those are just monikers that we use. The question that Moses is asking is not by what moniker, what name, what title do we refer to you. When Moses asks for the name of God, he is getting at something much more foundational, much more basic, and it is this. What is the nature? What is the character? What is the being? Who are you? It goes deeper than what title should I throw at the children of Israel when they ask me. It is, who is this God? What is the nature and character of this God which is offering and promising us deliverance from our bondage? How will we know you and your nature and character, your your being, in this deliverance? And that is the question that God answers when he says, you will say to them, I am who I am. That's where that phrase comes from. That's where that title, ego I me, comes from. Now you say, Jim, hold on a second. Exodus wasn't written in Greek, was it? It was written in what? Hebrew. So how do you get a Greek phrase out of Exodus chapter 3, which Jesus uses in John chapter 8, when Exodus chapter 3 wasn't even written in Greek, it was written in Hebrew? 250 years before Jesus and the apostles lived, there was a, uh, a, a translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures done. It was called the Septuagint, or the Septuagint, or the Septuagint, or however you want to pronounce it, depending on where you're at on the face of the planet. Everybody has a different pronunciation for that, it seems. The Septuagint. Now that was, it was a Greek translation of the Old Testament in the language of the people in Jesus' day. Every synagogue had a copy of the Septuagint. It was the translation, and that was the scriptures that they used. The apostles and Jesus quoted from the Old Testament when they did. Most of the time they quoted from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And if you were a Jew in first century uh, Palestine or first century Israel, and you were sitting in a synagogue, you were reading Exodus chapter 3, you would be reading it in the Greek language, which was a translation of the Hebrew text. And when you got to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, you would read, you shall tell them that ego I me sent me. I am who I am. You shall tell them that the I am, the ego I me has sent you. So that's the language and the phrase that the Jews would have been familiar with. So when you had asked a first century Jew, what is the name of God? And how shall we know this God? What is his title? A first century Jew who spoke Greek would have said, he is the I am, he's the ego I me. And that is how we refer to him as the I am. So Jesus, in quoting that or in using that phrase in John chapter 8, is quoting the Greek text of Exodus chapter 3. It was a text and a phrase and wording and a name that every Jew would have been familiar with. That our God is the I am. Now there is so much packed into those two little words, I am, that we could take a whole series of messages just to unpack all the attributes of God that are relayed by those two words. We're not going to do it. Don't worry. But let me just sort of unpack it just a little bit. Those two words indicate to us and, and, and relate to us that God is eternal. He's not I have been or I will be. He is eternal. And He never changes. He is always the I am. He's not different today than He was last week. He won't be different tomorrow than He is today. Our God does not change. He is immutable. He does not change. He is self-sustained. He is the eternal one. He is self-existent. He is the source of life and being. Everything that has life derives its life from Him because He is the I am. Everything that has being derives its being from Him because He is the I am. He is before all things. He is over all things. He is after all things. He had no beginning. He will have no end. That is our God. He is the I am. He is the ever-present, always-present, eternal, infinite, immortal, always-being one. Does that make sense? That is our God. That is all that is packed in to that little name, I am. Now, if Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, were the only place where that was given, 
You and I might excuse Jews for not understanding or not catching that that was a name of God or referring to it often. But that's not the only place where the I am phraseology is used by God of himself. Now I want you to turn over to the book of Isaiah, chapter 43. Isaiah, chapter 43. Now while you're turning there, you set up this context a little bit for you. In Isaiah, chapter 43, this is the second half of the book of Isaiah, after sort of the break that comes at the end of verse uh, chapter 39. This is in a section of Isaiah which is has been called the trial of the false gods, where God is challenging these idols and saying, does an idol know the future? I do. Can an idol tell you what is going to come to pass before it ever comes to pass? I can. In fact, God says, and he gives all of this list of things that will be fulfilled, and he does this saying, when these things are fulfilled, then you will know that I am the I am. I am the eternal God. Also interesting in this section of Isaiah is that this is a section which is sort of littered with what they call the servant, the servant songs, the passages of Isaiah which speak of the Messiah. You're familiar with Isaiah 53? Well, there are other passages in this last part of Isaiah where the Lord refers to His servant, the coming one, the son of David, the Messiah, who would come and He would deliver His people and He would be their God. And that serve, those servant psalms are in this section of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 43, I want you to look at verse 10, and you are going to see now some of these I am statements in the book of Isaiah. There are four, four, four of them. Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that ego I me. I am. There's the title. It's the same phrase. It's the same phrase that the Lord applies to himself. Right? I have, I have chosen you. You are my servant. I want you to know and believe me and understand that I am he. It's almost as if Jesus is quoting not Exodus chapter 3, but Isaiah chapter 43, when he says in verse uh, chapter 8, verse 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Here's God saying to the nation of Israel, I want you to believe that I am. I go, I mean. Now turn over to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. It's the same formulation again. Here it's a little bit different. At the beginning of verse 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Now, at the beginning of that verse is the Old Testament name of God. And when the translators of the Septuagint translated that into Greek, here's how it reads, Ego I me, Ego I me, the one who wipes out your transgressions. It is I am, I am the one who wipes out your transgression. God is there emphasizing something. He uses his own name twice. And he says, I am, I am. And I will wipe out your transgressions. How did the Jews understand their God to be called in the Old Testament? He's the ego I mean. Turn to Isaiah chapter 51 verse 12. Here you see it again at the beginning of the verse. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass? Beginning of verse 12 in the Septuagint. And the Greeks read their Old Testament. They got to Isaiah chapter 51, verse 12, and you know what they read? Ego I me, ego I me. I am, I am the one who comforts you. And then turn to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 6. 52, verse 6. This is God's promise. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. And the Greek translation of that Septuagint phrase says, I am is the one speaking to you. Do you see what Isaiah is doing? He's using something, or God is doing something through Isaiah. He is using his, his name from Exodus 3.14, which 
which promised deliverance. And Isaiah is using that. The Lord is employing that in Isaiah, the second half, when he is speaking of the deliverer who is to come. And he is reminding his people, I am your God, and you ought to know me and not the idols. None of the false idols can say this, but I am the I am. And Isaiah is using that terminology, that phrase from Exodus chapter 3, speaking of deliverance, to promise another deliverance. And he uses over and over again that same name, I am. The I am who delivered you from Egypt in Moses' day is the same I am who will deliver you when the servant comes. When that suffering servant comes, that I am, that one, that Messiah will be known as the I am. Now back to John chapter 8. And that is all the skipping around we're going to do for today. John chapter 8, verse 24. Now you saw it in Exodus chapter 3, 14, right? What is your name? I am who I am. Ego I mean. You saw it in Isaiah chapter 43, chapter 51, chapter 52. What is our God's name? He is the Ego I mean. He is the I am. He is the always eternal being one. He always is there. Now John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus says, Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John chapter 8:58 or John 58 8:28 says when you lift up the son of man then you will know that I am. Now your translation might have the word he there. Do you notice that? It's also got it in italics which indicates it's not something that's in the original text. It is something that the translators put in there to sort of smooth it out a little bit, to make it flow and be not so awkward. Listen, it is its awkwardness which indicates that Jesus is not using this in the way of saying, I'm the one, or I'm, I am me, it's me. He's not doing that. It is the awkwardness that indicates that he is taking the divine title of the God of the Old Testament and applying it to himself and saying, I am the ego I me. And unless you believe that, you will die in your sins. The NIV translates it, unless you believe that I am the one I claim to be. Now, I said last week, that is... A horrible translation. It obscures and totally clouds the issue that Jesus is driving at. Because in John chapter 8, verse 24, the NIV makes a sound as if Jesus is alluding to a previous claim. And you start reading up and say, well, where, what did he claim to be? I guess we've got to go back in the text. and Oh, it's verse 12. He claimed to be the light of the world. So he must be saying, unless you believe I'm the light of the world, you will die in your sins. He said, listen, John chapter 8, verse 24 is not raising the issue of who does Jesus claim to be. It is answering that question. Who did he claim to be? The I am. So the NIV kind of clouds it a little bit. They do it at verse 28 as well, unless you believe, or then you will know that I am the one I claim to be. Now, let me say something on behalf of the NIV. Listen, the NIV is not translated by a bunch of, uh, in, in, the, in the basement of some Masonic lodge, by a bunch of anti-Trinitarian Satan worshipers who are trying to cloud the issue. It's not, get that out of your, that's nonsense entirely. What the NIV translators were trying to do was clarify things and smooth out the reading of the text a little bit. The problem is that they just simply missed it. Now, they didn't miss it, at John 8, verse 58. You notice at the end of the chapter, the NIV, the ESV, the NASV, the KJV, every other V, says in verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, ego, I mean, I am. The NIV got it right there. They understood it. But listen, Jesus had said that not once in John 8, but three times. He hit it home. John 8, 24, If you do not believe that I am the eternal God, you will die in your sins. Now he gets to the end of the chapter, and it is so clear what he has said. Before Abraham was born, or sorry, Abraham rejoiced and he saw my day. You're not even 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? When did you see Abraham? Before Abraham ever came into existence. Before Abraham was ever born. I am. Ego, I mean. Now, how did the Jews respond to that? 
They picked up stones to stone him. Because that is exactly what their law called for. A blasphemer should be stoned. That was blasphemy to them. He's claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. They understood it. They got it. And they picked up stones to stone him. Just like in chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus says, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out God. They understood exactly what he was claiming. And that's why they tried to stone him. It was blasphemy if it was not true. But if it was true, they needed to kneel down, not to pick up stones, but to worship. That should have been their response. They thought he was blaspheming because they understood exactly what he was claiming to be. He was claiming to be the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The God who spoke through Isaiah and promised deliverance. That is who Jesus was claiming to be in John chapter 8. Now this brings up the central theological issue of John chapter 8, and it is this. And here's the deep theological question I want you to ponder. What must I believe about Jesus to be saved? What is the bare minimum that I must believe about Jesus in order to be saved? Is it sufficient if I believe that Jesus was the Messiah if I reject Him as God? Is that sufficient faith to save me? Is it enough for me to believe that Jesus was a prophet or even the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18? Can I believe that much and reject His divine nature and still be saved? Is that possible? Is it possible for me to believe that He was the Messiah, a prophet, a good teacher, a rabbi, a moral leader, and even the Son of God who had divine attributes or divine-like attributes, or maybe that he was even a smaller God or sort of a demigod or a semi-god or a partial God, if I reject him as the Yahweh, the I Am, the eternal God, the only true God of the Old Testament. Is that faith enough to save me? Can a Jehovah's Witness be saved because he says that Jesus is a God? In other words, that he is God-like. Can a Mormon be saved if he confesses that Jesus is not God, but that he is the Son of God, just like Lucifer and just like you and I? Is that faith enough to save him? Not according to John chapter 8. If you do not believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is God, you are not and cannot be saved. No matter how high of a view you have of Jesus, if it falls short of full deity, you fall short of eternal life. You cannot be saved. It is not my faith and the strength of my faith or the power of my faith or the reality of my faith that saves me. Do you understand that? What saves me is the object of my faith. It is the one in whom I have believed. And even if my faith is small, if it is in the right object, it is a well-placed saving faith. The person who has been regenerated and born again and who is saved will always be willing to confess that Jesus Christ is their Lord and their God. They will be willing to worship Him, not as a God, not as a semi-God, not as a partial God, or almost God, but as full deity. Because the one who denies that Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God, the radiance of God's glory, who denies that He is in, in Him is contained all the fullness of God in bodily form, that He is the eternal Word, who became flesh, the one who denies that does not have saving faith, no matter how high their view of God is. 
And you'll hear people talk about faith as if it's faith that saves them, and the object is irrelevant. You just need to have faith. He's a man of faith. His faith is incredible. He's got all kinds of faith. He is saved by faith. You're a person of faith. But the question is, what is your faith in? If your faith is not in a divine Savior, that faith cannot save you. No matter how strong that faith is, no matter how sincere that faith is, if you get wrong the person of Jesus Christ, your faith will damn you because your faith is not in the one in whom it needs to be in order to be saved. So your faith is insufficient then. Your faith cannot save you because the object of your faith is wrong. Is Jesus somebody that you and I can kind of mold and twist and shape to our own liking? Oprah will tell you so. You just watch Oprah. She believes in Jesus, don't you know that? Oh yeah, Oprah believes in Jesus. The president believes in Jesus. Deepak Chopra has a view of Jesus. He has probably some degree of faith in Jesus and the Jesus that he worships. But are their views of Jesus sufficient to save them? If your idea of Jesus is that he's some 1970s hippie-style liberal social revolutionary, or that he's just a semi-quasi-divine being, that view of Jesus cannot save you. Remember the 1980s band Depeche Mode? They had that song, Your Own Personal Jesus? That's what everybody wants, their own personal Jesus. A Jesus is just this little wax figurine that we can mold and shape until he looks a lot like us, and then we can worship him. And you know what that is? It's called idolatry. That's not saving faith, that's idolatry. And that type of idolatry will damn you. The question is, are you and have you, are you willing to embrace Jesus Christ as he is revealed in Scripture fully? Not the Jesus that you make after your own liking, but the Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture. Have you and will you and are you willing to embrace that? The person who has genuine saving faith, the divine gift of faith mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2, that person will say unhesitatingly, yes, Because the divine faith that God gives to his elect, that faith which cries out for salvation, that faith which is real and saving and eternal and will always last and secures the believer, that faith always, 100% of the time, always has as its object Jesus Christ the God-man. Always. A faith that does not have that as its object is not a divine faith. It's not a saving faith. It's not a genuine faith. And we have seen through the Gospel of John that there are two different types of faith. There's shallow faith. There's unbelieving faith. There is faith that will embrace Him as King. But the issue always is, will you embrace everything He says about Him? In John chapter 5, the issue was, will you embrace Jesus as the one who is equal with the Father in His work, in His glory, in His power, in His authority, in His sovereignty, and His salvation? Are you willing to embrace that Jesus? And they wanted to kill that Jesus. The issue in John chapter 6 was not will you embrace Jesus as a prophet or as a king, but will you embrace him as the living bread, the divine son, to whom the Father has committed the salvation of all of his elect people. Will you embrace Jesus on those terms? And if the answer is no, then you walk away without salvation. If the answer is yes, then you have eternal life. So the issue always is, do we embrace Jesus as he has revealed himself in Scripture, and will we yield in obedience and faith to that Jesus? Or do we create a custom Jesus, our own personal Jesus, with whom we feel very comfortable, who doesn't judge us for our sin, he doesn't hold us accountable, he doesn't want holiness and purity, he's just very much like us. Unless you believe, Jesus said, that ego I me, I am, you will die in your sins, unredeemed, unrepentant, unforgiven, and unatoned for. What is the Jesus that you have believed in? 
John, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, says in his epistle, and I'm going to read you two passages in clothing, for, uh, closing, closing, not clothing. Well, I am reading you two passages in clothing, too, which you can be thankful for. John chapter, First uh, John chapter 2, verse 22. The apostle says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Listen, to deny the Son is to deny the Father. That's what John is saying. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. In other words, if you get the doctrine of Jesus wrong, you get the doctrine of God wrong. You're an idolater. He who denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son, that is, believes everything about the Son that is revealed in Scripture and acknowledges that, has the Father also. As for you... Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. In Second John chapter 9, John says, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. It is impossible, hear this, it is impossible to get your doctrine and worship of the Son wrong and get your doctrine and worship of the Father right. It's impossible. If you get your doctrine of the Son wrong and you are worshiping a different Jesus, you have got your doctrine of the entire Godhead wrong. And that is called idolatry and you will be damned and you will perish in your sin because you have not believed upon Jesus Christ as He truly is. The I Am. Who is the I Am? The Ego I Me, Ego I Me of Exodus, of Isaiah, of the Old Testament, of the burning bush, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you embraced that Jesus? Do you worship Him as God? If not, you are in eternal peril. Eternal peril. Let's pray together. Father, thank You that our Savior is divine, that He is fully God and fully man, able to stand in the stead of sinners and to bear an infinite wrath and provide an infinite righteousness on behalf of your people. We pray, O oh God, that you would give us understanding in these things to never back down from this contested issue, which is the deity, the full deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship you, our Father, and we honor you through the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, our blessed triune God, for your grace and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.